Amen. Lord, that is our heart's desire to worship you. You're such a great and awesome God. You're worthy to be worshipped, to be praised, to be honored, and to be lifted up. And Lord, this morning we pray as we go to your word that you would minister to every single heart that is here. We thank you for your word, that it's living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword. We just ask this morning that you would be our teacher, that your Holy Spirit would minister to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks again. It's good to have you here at Calvary Chapel. Again, I hope you feel welcome. Before you ask, I broke my finger playing softball, okay? I dove. It would be a great story if I caught the ball, but that's not what happened. All right? I missed it. It went by me. The guy got a triple, and we lost the game. So other than that, it went pretty well. But praise the Lord, I don't do that for a living, all right? Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. Again, if you're new here, on, on Wednesday nights, we go verse-by-verse through the Old Testament. This coming Wednesday will be in Numbers chapter 36, finishing up the book of Numbers. Been a great book, looking at Numbers. This morning, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And what I want to do is just catch you guys up again briefly. I love to give you the context. You understand what's going on. And 1 Corinthians has been referred to by some as 1 Californians because it is so much like the place that we live in today. Corinth was a city that was very godless. Corinth was a city that was very much into philosophy and idol worship. And it was a place where people vacationed from morality. It was called, you know, it was Corinth by the sea. It, it had two seas that ran right into it. The sailors would come there. And it was this great seaport city. And again, they had idol, idol uh, temples to idols all over the city, including a, one that was 1,800 feet tall to the goddess Aphrodite. And there was temple prostitutes that would come down from that. And, and throughout this entire city, it was a place where they were very much into Greek philosophy. So they pursued knowledge, and it was immoral. But in the midst of all of that, God, in, in Paul's second missionary journey, God had brought him to Corinth, and while there, he had planted a Christian church. And this church was growing, and God was doing great things with it. But now four or five years have gone by, and Paul gets a letter or a note. It could even come by word or by, by letter. We don't know for sure. But word gets back to him that the people in Corinth are becoming more and more impacted by the world around them, and now they're starting to chase after philosophy, and some are falling into sexual immorality. And instead of them impacting Corinth, Corinth was impacting them. And the same can be said for much of the church today. That instead of us impacting the world, in a lot of cases, the world is impacting the church. We start to compromise. We start trying to fit in with the world. But can I tell you right now, God's desire is not that we fit in with the world. Amen? We're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're to minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. And again, we need to have a burden for the lost and love on everybody, but we're not to be like the world. Well, that's the city of Corinth. And so when Paul gets this this word back, this is a church that he planted. He was their pastor. And his heart is broken, so he he writes them this very practical letter to give them instruction to get their eyes back where they need to be. And the first chapter, the first thing he did was he reminded them who they were in Christ. He said, you know what, you might be living amongst a bunch of godless people, but you're saints, you're set apart ones. God died for you, he has a relationship with you, his Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and that's who you are. And that's a good reminder for all of us. That no matter where you're living, no matter how godless the world is around you, you are a new creation in Christ and the Spirit of the living God lives inside of you. He then went on to tell them that, you know what, all these philosophies that are going on around you are noise and what you really need to be looking at is the power of the cross. He said the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are dying in their sin, but those who are being saved is the power of God. And you know what, again, there's a de-emphasization of the cross in churches today. People are talking more and more about meeting the felt needs of man than preaching the cross. You know what every man needs? Every man needs Jesus. Amen? And that's what we need to be pointing people to, is salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, not trying to you know, fulfill the felt needs of every man and woman. Again, if your marriage is in trouble, fall in love with Jesus and God will correct it. Amen? If you're struggling with your work environment, if you're struggling with an addiction or whatever, you know what? Our God can deliver you from that, amen? And you don't need a 12-step program, a one-step program. Jesus Christ will solve it all. And so we see here that he's giving them the emphasis and putting it back on the Lord and talking about the power of the cross because they're caught up in the great orators of the day and they loved charismatic men. Well, within the church, they began to even fight amongst themselves. And one of the things they did is they started to line up behind different men. 
And some of them said, I'm of Paul. And others said, I'm of Apollos. And others said, I'm of Peter. And Paul wrote back to them and said, man, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you guys. Because don't align with me, align with the Lord. And you know what? I know we have visitors here today. I talked to some of you from different churches in different parts of the country. And here's the reality. If we have Jesus in common, we've got everything in common. And it doesn't matter whether what type of church you go to, we're all one in Christ. Amen? And there's only one church, and we're all a part of it. And sadly, this division was coming as some wanted a more charismatic teacher like Apollos, and others wanted someone more simple like Peter. And they were dividing within the body. And so he told them, get your eyes back on the cross. Remember who you are, your saints set apart to the Lord. And then he told them the true source of wisdom. And we talked about this. Encourage you to grab the tape on 1 Corinthians 2. By the way, all tapes and all CDs are always free and always will be. Amen? How can we charge for the gospel? So they're back there. Help yourself. Give them to friends. Do whatever you want with them, all right? But in chapter 2, he told them the source of true wisdom. And these guys were, again, into all the philosophies. And he said, wisdom only comes from the Holy Spirit. And if you do not have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you have no wisdom. So I don't care how many degrees you have after your name. It's irrelevant if you don't know God. Amen? And the Bible says we're to walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. And he said, guys, the source of true wisdom is not how philosophical, how, how, what great orators they are, or how charismatic they might be, or even you know, how authoritative they might be in what they teach. It's irrelevant if they don't have Christ. It's irrelevant if they don't have dwelt with the Holy Spirit. And then he contrasts the difference between the natural man and the spiritual man. And then last week, in, in chapter 3, we talked about a sure foundation. And we talked about how we grow and we mature spiritually as believers. And we saw the contrast between the spiritual Christian and the carnal Christian. And we talked about the difference between the milk of the Word and the meat of the Word. And by quick review, milk of the, of the Word is the Gospel. And the easy way to remember it is what Christ has done for you. That's the milk. And the meat is what does Christ want to do in you now. You've been born again and God's not done with you. Amen? He still has a work He wants to do in your life and in your heart. And He shared that with those in Corinth. And he told them how to grow spiritually. And he said, you need to have the right foundation, and it's Jesus Christ. You need to have the right material, which is the right heart. You need to have the right plan. Focus on the Word of God, not the wisdom of men. And you need to have the right motives. Now that brings us to chapter 4. And as we come to chapter 4, we're going to see the, the pattern for growing spiritually mature, that, that spiritual maturity that he desires to work in each person's heart. But now he's going to give them a picture of how God desires to use each one of us in ministry. You've been here more than one week, you've heard me say it. God did not save you to be a pew potato. Amen? God saved you to use you. The reason the Dead Sea is dead is it's all inlet and no outlet. I've been in the Dead Sea and it stings, right? No, no fish live in there and it's dead because all it does is take in and it never gives out. And a lot of believers are very much the same because all they do is take in and they never give out. They come to church and they read their Bible and they listen to Christian music on the radio, whatever it might be, but they never really use the gifts God's given to them. And this morning we're going to see the man or the woman that God uses. And we're going to see some of the attributes of the man or the woman that God uses. And we're going to see that in this chapter as, again, Paul continues to write to these people that he loves so very much. And he's going to directly contrast the prideful and self-centered and puffed up philosophers and their wisdom and intellect with the wisdom that comes from God. The ability to, again, be able to minister to the world around you. You know, the world's desire is to win at all costs. The world's desire is, you know, you should be confident in your own ability, in your own intellect. You should be able, you know, passionate about what you do. Pursue your goals of fortune and fame. But here's the reality. We're going to see this morning, that's the exact opposite of what God tells us to do. It's not about us using our abilities. It's about us dying to self and being filled with Him. It's about us seeking first the kingdom of God. It's about us denying ourselves. And that's what Paul's going to talk about. So let's begin in chapter 4, in verse 1, and we're going to look at the man that God uses, or the woman that God uses. And we're going to see, if you take notes this morning, that the man or woman that God uses first is a faithful servant and a steward. Second of all, is humble. Third of all, has a supernatural love for those that are called to minister to. So, one, a faithful servant. Two, is humble. And third, has a supernatural love for those that are called to minister to. So let's begin in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 
So Paul's writing and he says to them, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. So the first thing he says to them is let them consider us. Now, there were those in Corinth that elevated the apostles too much, and then there were those in Corinth that thought nothing of them. There were those in Corinth who said, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos. Then there were those who said, you know what, philosophy makes more sense to me, and you know what, Paul, you know, he hasn't been here in five years, and we've forgotten all about him. And now he's writing back to them to say, look, let me tell you, what I'm called to do. Let me tell you how I'm supposed to relate to you guys. And the first thing he says is, when you consider me, consider us as servants. Paul asked them that, that when they would think of the other apostles and when they think of him, how are they to treat them? Are they to exalt them? Are they to honor them? And he says, no. You're to think of me as a servant. Now that word for servant there in Greek is the word that means under rower. Because when you think of me, think of an under rower. Now, what is an under rower? An under rower is the one who's in the very belly of the ship, at the very bottom, and his hands are on the oars 24-7. He probably gets to sleep, but that's about it. And he holds his hands on the oars, and his eyes are focused in one place, on the man who's barking out orders. And he only has one master, he only has one passion, he only has one focus, he only has one duty, and that is to turn those oars in obedience to the one who calls him to do it. And he says, when you think of me, think of an under rower. Now notice, he doesn't say, think of a superstar. He doesn't say, hey, I'm Paul. You know who I am. I was going down the Damascus Road and Jesus Christ appeared to me. That's right. Right? He didn't do that. He wasn't saying, you know, you should think I'm pretty special. By the way, I've written a few letters that are going to be in the Bible one day. Right? He didn't do that. What he said was, he didn't say, you know, honor me, esteem me, exalt me. He said, think of me as an under rower, as a servant. The Bible says if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. And Paul said, when you think of me, think of a servant. And I love this because that person acts under, under direction, asks no question, responds without hesitation, and reports only to the one who was over him. And that should be our heart. So the first thing that we see in somebody who, a man or a woman that God uses is first, they have a servant's heart. The second word there is he says, they're servants of Christ and stewards of of the mysteries of God. What is a steward? A steward is one who manages everything for his master and yet owns nothing. A steward is the one like Joseph. You know the story of Joseph? Went into the house of Potiphar. Potiphar said, okay, Joseph, you're over my entire household. And he was in charge of paying the bills and making sure that everybody was fed and everything was taken care of in the home. And he managed the entire house, but he owed, owned none of it. And again, that's a picture of us as believers, because we are stewards of the mystery of God, but it doesn't belong to us. It's not about us, it's about Him, amen? He alone should be glorified, He alone should be honored. So he says, when you think of me, think of an under rower, someone who's holding his hands and is simply looking at his master and, and rowing away in obedience, and also realize that what I am is a steward of the mysteries of God. Now, one thing about a steward a steward was a slave to his master, but to other slaves, he was a master. And that's really a picture of Paul, that he was a servant to his master, Almighty God, to his Lord, Jesus Christ. But at the same time, he was called to be an apostle, which meant he ministered to others. So while he was serving God, others were coming to him, and he was, and we're going to see later, quote, their father in the faith. He was their pastor. So he was a servant, and at the same time, he ministered to the hearts of others. So Paul's desire is, when you think of me, don't think of a superstar. Don't think of somebody that you want to exalt. Don't say, I'm of Paul. I'm an under rower, and I'm a steward of what God has put in my hands. I'm an apostle, but I'm a, I'm a servant, and I'm a steward. Now, what are the mysteries of God? The mysteries of God is quite simply for you and I today. It's the truth of the gospel. Do you understand, and we all do, I'm sure, that the gospel in the Old Testament is revealed in types. If you've been coming on Wednesday night, you can see Jesus in every chapter in the Old Testament. I defy someone to bring me a chapter that I can't find Jesus. I promise you, I might have to study a little bit, but I'll find him, all right? And as we've been going through every chapter in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, we've seen Jesus in every single one of them. Because the Old Testament all points to the coming Savior. 
And he is the mystery revealed. The mystery of the Old Testament is revealed in, in the cross of Christ. And he says to them, I am the steward of the mystery. Now to the world, it's foolishness. That's what he said in, in chapter 1, verse 18. But to us, it is the power of God. And he said, I'm called to be a steward to rightly distribute that truth to a world that so desperately needs to know the Lord. Verse 2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. A good steward is one who is found faithful. You want to be somebody that God uses? Be faithful. And what does it mean to be faithful? Again, it's not about being popular before men, but faithful before God. Faithful is someone in ministry who can be counted on. You know what? I love what God's doing here with so many of your lives. And I love the fact that, you, and sometimes you guys get frustrated with me because I'll never ask anybody to do anything. And people get mad at me. Pastor Dave, just tell me what to do. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Because if I tell you what to do, then you'll do it for me. And then you're going to get tired. And then I'm going to have to call you at home, make sure you're showing up. And I don't want to do that. All right? But if God calls you, God will sustain you. Amen? If the Lord calls you to do it, it's a joy and it's a get-to. And you know what? There are, there are numerous ministries that I would love to see our church more involved in. And I continue to pray daily about them. And I'm just waiting for the person to show up that comes knocking on my door or comes up to me after church and says, you know what? The Lord's put in my heart to do this. And I'm going to say, amen. We're 100% behind you. How can we help you? Because when we're called by God, it is a get-to. And God will sustain us. And you know what? Someone who's faithful in ministry is someone who can be counted on. I don't have to call the bookstore people and tell them to make sure to set up the bookstore. I don't call Bill's house at 7 in the morning and say, make sure you get down there and set up them chairs for this morning. I don't call the worship team. I don't have to call. Why? Because people are called and they're walking and they're calling and they fulfill it and they're faithful. If someone is faithful, they'll show up and they'll, be, they'll show up on time, prayed up and prepared. You know what? Can I, I will tell you what need we have. I won't ask any of you to do it. I'll tell you a need we have. We have a need in the children's ministry. And can I tell you that I believe that is the most fruitful place in this church? Why? Because most people come to know Christ before the age of 15. And do you know that I came to know the Lord, most of you have heard this, when I was four and a half in Mrs. Green's class at the First Baptist Church of Wilmington. And she put up the little flannel board, and she was a woman who prayed for all of her kids every week. And when I came to class, I always saw her, and she taught me. And then when I, at the end, she gave, me an, gave us an opportunity to know the Lord, and I raised my hand, and she prayed the prayer with me and gave me a little white Bible to take home. And do you know what? This church is fruit of Mrs. Green's ministry. Amen? But Mrs. Green not only showed up, she prayed up, and she was prepared when she got there. So our heart ought to be, whatever God's called us to do, let's do it faithfully. Amen? And it shouldn't be a have to. If you're doing a ministry here at Calvary Chapel and it's a have to, stop. Don't do it anymore. Man, I have, it's my turn in the children's Don't do that. Then don't come. All right? Just, just say, hey, you know what? I'm not called to do that. And it, we'll still love you. It's okay. Right? But the reality is, be found faithful. Take your, your calling seriously. You do it all as unto the Lord. Let me ask you a question. How faithful are you with the gifts God's given you? If you're saved, you've got gifts. Again, you're not a pew potato. You're not the Dead Sea. God saved you and He wants to use you. And I'll tell you, can I tell you there's no greater joy in the world than, being, than using the gift God's given you? And you all have them. And do you, can I tell you this too? If you're a part of this fellowship, the gifts that you have, we need you to use for this church to be what God wants it to be. Because you have gifts that I don't have. And if you don't use your gifts, then we're missing out. And I want to encourage you. You know, it might be a little scary, but I, I think this is my gift, but I'm, you know what, dig a well, it's okay. You know what, let's, you know, step out. That's a way that we grow. So be faithful, first of all, in your personal life, in your home, and then in your calling. And when we're faithful in the small things, the Bible says that God gives us more to do. You know, I don't know one pastor, of all the pastors I've ever met in my life, and there's hundreds of them, that didn't start out doing practical ministry. Every pastor I've ever met started out setting up chairs or, you know, working in the children's ministry or something, and then God, as they stepped out and just were faithful in what God had called them to do, that God gave them more and more to do, myself included. I used to set up chairs and work in the two- and three-year-old class with my wife, and I loved it, and I didn't think I'd ever be a pastor, and God had other plans for me, but be faithful in that which God has called you to do, and He will give you even more to do. Verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you 
or by, by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. There was a faction in Corinth that had judged Paul, and they were looking down on him. And Paul looks at him, and look what he says. It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. You know what? It doesn't matter what men think about you. It's irrelevant. But you know what? We act like it's the only thing that matters, don't we? From the clothes we buy to the cars we drive to the way we get our hair cut, right? And we were really worried about what men think. And we're so focused on that that we miss out on what's really important, and that's where we stand with the Lord. We'll spend so much time chasing after things to impress men. Or as I like to say, spending money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't know, right? And we do it all the time. And we do that because we want others, the approval of others. Do you know when we stand before God on Judgment Day, it won't matter what your next door neighbor thought about? Now, I want to say this. We should have a godly reputation. We should have godly character. And we should honor the Lord in the way that we live. But it doesn't matter if we're popular with men because the Bible says that if you serve God with your whole heart, you're not going to be popular with all men. Amen? And if you're popular with all men, you need to start being more sold out for the Lord. The most popular kid on campus needs to get on fire for Jesus Christ. Amen? Because I'll tell you what, when you start loving Him with your whole heart, one of two things will happen with your friends. They'll get saved or they'll stop hanging out with you. Because they don't want to have anything to do with someone who's one of those Jesus freaks, right? But praise the Lord. And so we see here that He says to them, I'm not worried about what men think, and I'm not worried about human wisdom, and I'm not worried about having a positive self-image before men. It's irrelevant to me. I don't care what they say. And you know what? Today, again, quite often, even in the church, we make the mistake of, of even how we feel about ourselves. He says there, I do not even judge myself. You know, some of you judge yourselves too harshly. I know some of you that walk around and, and wonder if you're saved every other day. Can I tell you, if you've been born again, you're saved, amen? amen. And you're going to heaven, and your name's written in the Lamb's book of life, and nobody's ever going to snatch you out of our Savior's hand. And you need to understand God's grace. And it breaks my heart when I see people just going back and forth. Well, yeah, I'm saved. Well, maybe I'm not now because I blew it. Well, may- That's not our God, amen? He loves you. And sometimes we don't judge ourselves enough. We got the cheap grace program going, and we just live like, hey, I prayed the prayer, I got the get-out-of-hell-free card, it's in my wallet, Pastor Dave dated it, right, and I'm good, right? And now I can go live like the world, and it doesn't matter. And you know what? In the middle of all of that, what you need to do is just fall in love with Jesus and serve Him with your whole heart and trust Him. And so he says here, I'm not worried about what men think about me, and I don't even judge myself, because the judgment I make upon myself, even that, can be wrong. And then he says, He who judges me is the Lord. Again, it's not about popularity before men, but about faithfulness before God. The Word and the Holy Spirit is what judges us and gives us direction and leading for our lives. And then one day, we're all going to stand before the Creator of the universe, and He's the one that's going to judge us. No man will judge us. They're not going to have a committee up in heaven. They're not going to be voting. None of the apostles are in on the vote. It's not how it works. You're going to stand before God. And you know what? I'm going to be standing before my best friend, and I can't wait. That's the key, you guys. If you know the Lord and He's your best friend, you long for that day. And if you don't know Him, you're in fear of that day. And you don't need to be afraid. He loves you. And He desires to have a relationship with you. And if you'll simply come to Him with a heart that says, Lord, take my life, He will. Verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will, bring, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts then each one's praise will come from God. He says, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. It's only the Lord's judgment that matters. And he talks there about the counsels, and he's talking about the true heart and the true motive. You know what? You can fool men, but you can't fool God. God knows where you're at. He knows exactly what's going on in your life. Here's the good news. He he that knows you best loves you most. He knows every wicked, vile thing you've ever done, and he still loves you and he never stops thinking about you and you are always on his mind and you are his treasured possession that's the god that we serve and he says there that our praise will come from god and the bible says in first samuel that man looks on the outward appearance and god looks on the heart and god sees our heart and he knows where we are and if you want to be a man or woman that god can use you just need to be someone who comes before the lord and says lord my life is yours 
I give you my life. It's all yours. Lord, I'm not going to pursue the world anymore. I want to pursue you. I want to know you intimately. I want to follow after you with my whole heart. You know what? I'm looking forward to seven words. What are they? That's it. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You know what? It's interesting. Things that, you know, I played a lot of athletics, and the things that we prized back in the day, not, not too long ago, my wife took a, I told her to, boxes full of, quote, awards, and we pitched them in the trash. And I remember when I won them, they were like so important to me. And now they're kindling, okay? They don't mean anything. And the things that we strive for, that promotion that we think is so important, you know, that new car or whatever it might be, or that, those things that we think are so key, when we stand before God, all that's going to matter are those seven words. Amen? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now enter into my peace. Enter into my rest. And that should be the heart and the passion and the focus of every believer. We should not be motivated by the immediate praise of men, but the ultimate praise of God. Not the immediate praise of men, but the ultimate praise of God. You want to be a man or a woman that God uses? You be one who has a heart of a servant. One that's got the, the desire to be a steward, to take what God has put in your hands and be faithful with it, though you owe nothing. And don't worry about what men think about you, but be only focused on seeking after God's heart. So a man or a woman God uses is a faithful servant and a steward who seeks praise only from God. Second of all, in verse 6, we'll see that a man or woman that God uses is humble. This is something that we don't know a whole lot about in the world today, but let's read on. Verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuredly transferred to myself, and Apollos for your sakes, you may learn it is not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. The Corinthians were measuring men by their own personal preferences. They were even comparing their, their ministers, the apostles, or their, quote, pastors with each other. Often the, they would take the, what, the true basis for evaluating someone who's called by God, that which is written in the Word, and they were setting that aside and instead coming up with their own value system for what was a good pastor. Does that sound like the world we live in today? The Bible says in Ephesians that the pastor's job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. His qualifications are in 1 Timothy chapter 3. That's it. So read it. Equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. His qualifications are 1 Timothy chapter 3. And you know, I've had search committee. I'm not leaving, by the way. You're stuck with me. But I have search committees send me stuff all the time. I don't know whose list I'm on. And they give you this list of stuff they're looking for in a pastor. And you get this list, and the Apostle Paul would not qualify. <laughs> There's no way. Billy Graham, nobody. And you're reading the list, and you're like, where does this come from? And they're looking for a CEO when they need to be looking for a pastor. Amen? Someone who wants to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and someone who in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is given to hospitality, is able to teach what the Bible says. And instead what we do is we need someone with a good sense of humor. We need someone that's really entertaining. We've got to have several worldly degrees. His appearance should be this. He's got to have skills in marketing and sales. And you know, he's got to have a, a, you know, all these different things. And you go through this list and you're like, where did that come from? And right here he's telling them, you're judging these guys above the Word. And it's the Word that we judge these men based on. You need to look for someone based on what the Word of God says, not what's popular with men. Remember, where are they living? What are they surrounded by? They're surrounded by these philosophers who are out standing on street corners, and they're real, you know, great orators, and they're just out there giving these flowery speeches. They're like, man, we need a pastor like that guy. Now, the fact that that guy's not saved should be a problem, right? And the reality is that too often we've, we just set that aside in his walk with the Lord, and we're looking for someone who can draw a crowd. We're looking for a Christian rainmaker, right? We want a superstar to come in here and draw people in so we can get more tithes, we can have a bigger building, and we can have more people not being taught the Word, right? And the reality is instead what we need to look for is those who are called by God. What is a pastor called to do? To serve, to feed, to lead, and to love the sheep. That's his job right there. Serve them, love them, feed them, lead them. That's it. And it's nothing beyond that. I'm not called to be the Holy Spirit in your life. I'm not called to tell you how to live and come over to your house and check everything. That's not my job. And I'm not called to, to get up here and try to be the CEO. I'm the under rower. I'm the servant. 
And all the pastors here are servants. That's what we're called to do, is to serve you and to love you and to minister to you. And he says, you guys should not be puffed up because you're using worldly standards. The Corinthians were pitting one apostle against another. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And they were picking out their, the, the different you know, character traits or the different personality traits and saying, I'm aligning with that guy because of it. Verse 7. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You know what? Every good thing you have came from God. Amen? Everything. Those shoes you're wearing, those are God's shoes on loan to you. Amen? The house you're living in, whatever gifts you have, if you can play an instrument, God gave you that gift. How are you using that gift? Are you using it for His glory or are you using it for your own? Are you using it to draw attention unto yourself or to point people to the Lord? Whatever that gift is, it belongs to the Lord. And he says to these guys, you're getting puffed up in your gifts. You have no reason to be prideful. On, on the contrary, you should keep it, it should keep us humble to know that every gift we have comes from God and He can take it away anytime He wants to. Lord, it's yours. It came from you and I need to honor you because without you, it's worthless. And so he says to them, you have no reason to be prideful. In John 3, 27, it says, Jesus said this, a man can receive nothing except it was given to him from heaven. So whatever ability, you might say, well, I worked really hard and I studied a long time to get my education and I'm the one that really did all the work. You know what? God gave you the intellect to be able to do it. If without him, you couldn't have done it. He gets all the glory. He gets all, but I went to school for eight years. Well, praise the Lord. Amen? He gets all the honor. He gets all the praise. And you know what? We should never receive praise into ourselves. Just a side note as your pastor, can I tell you that something that really grieves me is Christian celebrities? It grieves my heart. You know what? I don't want anybody's autograph. I just want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Amen? I don't want to prop up men and, and exalt men and extol men. And, you know, and what happens is, especially with Christian music, right? People are worshiping these guys because that's what you do with rock stars. And when I was a youth pastor in San Jose, we used to bring groups in all the time to play to the youth. And you know, they'd come in initially and just be stoked that they could lead kids in worship and they could do ministry. And then over time, they start getting played on the radio and have a few albums out, and all of a sudden, they want $15,000 to play for an hour, and you've got to pick them up in a limousine from the airport, and there's got to be green M&Ms in the, in the limo. And I'm like, what, what happened? You know what happened? You became Christian celebrities, and that grieves the heart of God. And he's saying the very same thing to these guys here. Whatever you have, it came from the Lord, and touch not the glory. The glory belongs to Him. If you have a gift, you honor Him with it, and you glorify Him with it. Verse 8. You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish that you did reign, that we also might reign with you. Corinthians had been a, a richly blessed city by God. And sadly, instead of being humbled by God's grace, they were puffed up by the gifts God had given them. It's so sad when that happens, that people start to get puffed up in their gift. You know what? The Bible says, take heed lest ye fall. If somebody starts getting puffed up in their gift, do them a favor in a loving and a kind way and say, bro, who gave you that gift? Honor God with it. Don't be drawing attention unto yourself. And, he, and he's, he's really coming to these guys saying, look at you guys, you're full and you're rich. You guys think that you've arrived because you have these gifts, but you should be honoring God with them instead of taking glory for them. A man or woman that God uses is humble. And he knows that every gift that he has or she has came from God. And may we never forget the author and finisher of both the gifts that we have and the faith that we walk in. Verse 9. For I thank God, I think that God has displayed, dis, displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Okay, this is a heavy verse. You may not understand it reading the first time. Let me explain it to you. Because this is a, such a contrast with what was going on in Corinth. In Corinth, the Christians were being puffed up in their knowledge and their, their understanding of philosophy, and they were lining up behind men. And then he says, let me tell you about the apostles and who we are in Christ. And this is what he says in verse 9. I think that God has displayed us the apostles last as men condemned to death. Now here's what this comes from. When a general went in and conquered a country or conquered a people, he would bring the spoils back. And in the very front of all the spoils would be the riches and the jewels and the gold and the things that he captured. And then the herds and the cattle. 
And right behind that would then be the people he's taken into captivity. And the very last ones to come in, in chains, would be those that have been captured and condemned to death. In the Roman days, they would be the ones that were taken into the Colosseum and fed to the lions. And what he is saying here is, let me tell you who we are. He says, I think that God has displayed us the apostles last. They came in last in that group. As men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Now, does he say, we're so awesome and we're Christian celebrities and we ought to be honored by men? Instead, he says, no, the exact opposite. And the word there for spectacle, it's interesting, is where we get the word theater. The apostles had been publicly humiliated. How many want to sign up for that? We all want to have an apostle's fruitful ministry, but we don't want to deal with the consequences of it or the things that come with it. We want to have a life that's filled with power, but we don't want to pay the price. We want to have a life that impacts the world and, and has our whole, our whole neighborhood coming to know Christ, but it could be that God is going to bring a trial into your life that you might be a testimony to the people in your neighborhood. Well, Lord, I don't want that. You let the testimony be that I win the lottery and I'm really generous with it, Right? Don't let it be that I lost my job and I'm losing my house and I still have joy. And what he's saying here is we become a spectacle to the world. The whole world's eyes are on us and they see that we have joy in the midst of being, quote, humiliated. And that was the greatest horror to these Corinthian Christians who wanted to follow the Lord but didn't want it to cost them anything. You know what, guys? That's not Christianity. Christianity is not the cruise ship to heaven where everything's got to be perfect. And there's certainly a lot of pastors that will tell you that. You know, you need to go in and just believe it and claim it and God will give you the Rolls Royce. Just say it 57 times fast and put a picture of it on your fridge and, you know, claim it in Jesus' name and someone will roll one up in your driveway, right? We are to pursue God, not the things of this world. Amen? This stuff is passing away. And I don't want anything that's going to get my eyes off of the Lord. No job, no finances, no home, no possessions. I want the Lord to be first. And what he's saying here is we've been humiliated. We've been publicly proclaimed before men. And people have seen us. We're a spectacle. It's a theater. They've seen who we are. Now look what it says in verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. Remember that he said back in 1 Corinthians, for the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. And he says to them, That we have become fools for Christ's sake. True wisdom or giving up of what we cannot keep in pursuit of that which we cannot lose. It appears to be foolish to the world. Does it make any sense to the world if you quit your job to go be a missionary? They're going to think you're outside of your mind. What's wrong with you? But it's foolishness to the world, but it's exactly what God may be calling you to do. And what he's telling them very, very clearly here in this text is he's, he's pointing to the fact that we've become fools for Christ, but you guys are wise in Christ. Then he says, we are weak, but you're strong. You're distinguished, but we're dishonored. He says, look at the difference between us. You're walking around puffed up in who you are in Christ, and here's who we are. We're the apostles called by God, sent out by God to plant churches all over the world, and look how we're received by the world, and look at you. You're fitting right in with the world. You're being honored by the world. And he's showing that clear and direct contrast. In 2 Corinthians, it says this, speaking of Paul. I can find it. 2 Corinthians, don't turn there. It's in chapter 12, just for your own notes. He says, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the, Lord's three, with the Lord three times that He might depart from me. And He said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in what? In weakness. And He says, You know what? We're weak. Why? Because we're desperate for God. It's in weakness. You know what happens, guys? So many of you shared your testimony with me that you were you know, living your life and it was when disaster happened that you looked up. It was when something, whether it was losing a job, a family member was diagnosed with a disease, maybe somebody in your own family even passed away, something happened where you were no longer in control, where you thought you had it all going on and you got all the abilities and you got all the talents and you got everything in control, and then something happened that made you stop and realize, I'm not in control. And when we are weak, He is made strong. And in our weakness, we have to look up and say, help, amen? 
And I'll tell you what, that's a great place to be. And when we've got it all knocked out, and we've got everything perfect, we've got all the money in the bank, and we're doing great at work, and everything's wonderful, too often we don't see our need for the Lord. And he says to her, when we are weak, in my weakness, he is made strong. In my weakness, his strength is perfected in me. He says, we're weak, you guys are strong. You're walking around saying, yeah, we got it all figured out. We're just hanging out in the philosophies of the world. We're debating over which Christian leader we want to follow. And we're having no impact because we're becoming more and more just like Corinth. It was through his own personal difficulty that Paul discovered where his spiritual strength came from. You know what? That's why it says in in James chapter 1, to count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. How many like to be in trials? Remember, lying is a sin. All right? Okay? We don't like trials. But you know what? Isn't that when we grow the most? It absolutely is when we grow the most. And so we'll say, Lord, make me more like you. And you go to work on Monday and you get fired. Right? I have a, a, a friend of mine. He's a pastor up in Oregon. And he, and he was away at a retreat center. And he went out on the beach and he dropped to his knees. And he said to God, you know what, Lord? He'd been reading biographies on godly men. He said, God, do whatever you have to do to me to make me a great man for you. And the next day he came down with Crohn's disease. If you know what Crohn's disease is, it's radical. But I'll tell you what, in his weakness, he's been made strong. In his weakness, the strength of God's been perfected in him, and he's desperate for the Lord, and now he's pastoring a church of 10,000 people. And God's blessing it. Why? Because he just said, you know what, Lord, take away from anything from me that gets my eyes off of you. And too often, we want to hold on to stuff. Too often, we think we've got to hold on to everything the world has to offer, and if we lose anything, somehow we're missing out. But count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. You want to be a man or woman that God uses? Be willing to let God have everything in your life. When we can't do it, when we're no longer in control, that's when we become desperate for God. Going back to India, six weeks from today, I appreciate your prayer. I have a chance to share with about 500 pastors again, just like, like last year. And you know what? I've sat in a room with a pastor, his wife, and four kids sleeping on a concrete floor with no plumbing, and no stove, and they don't know where breakfast is coming from tomorrow, and they have more joy in their relationship with God than anybody I've ever met. Why? Because you realize that Jesus is all you need when Jesus is all you have. Amen? And too often the things of this world, the trappings of this world, get in the way and they get our eyes off of God, and he's telling them, look, when we are weak, that's when we're made strong. Our flesh, our pride, our ego wants us to be self-reliant and in control. And John the Baptist Jesus said, of men born among women, there's been none greater. And what did he say? I must decrease that he might increase. The Corinthian believers were strong. They had no desperate need for the Lord. And because of it, they had fallen into the traps of the world. He said, you're distinguished, we're dishonored. Corinthian Christians were highly esteemed by the Corinthians for their wisdom, their learning, their riches, their power. And they were distinguished because they possessed so much of what the world admired. And the apostles at the same time were dishonored. You guys aren't sophisticated. Your, you, your message that you preach, you don't, you're not as eloquent as some other people. But you know what? Who were the ones who were in the center of God's will? Who were the ones that God was ministering through and ministering to? Faithful to God or popular with the world? Choose one. Faithful to God or popular with the world? Choose one. Don't we want to do both? Doing the spiritual splits, right? One, fit, one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. And we want to have everything the world has to offer. And at the same time, we want God to use us. We need to choose one. Verse 11. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. Now, if this, now if this was the brochure for being an apostle. Okay, guys, we got a new ministry, Apostle 101. And here's what it is. You're going you're gonna to be hungry. You're going to be thirsty. You're going to be poorly clothed, which means naked. You're going to be beaten and you're going to be homeless. Who wants to sign up? Right? And we know if you look, I don't have time to read it, but you go and you look in Acts talking about Paul. And what does it say? Or actually it's in Ephesians where it says he's day and night in the deep, right? And beaten and stoned and all the things that happened to Paul. You know what's amazing about Paul? Paul knew it was coming before it came and he still went. That's why I love that guy. God said, here's all the things going to happen to you, Paul. You're going to be stoned. How many of you like to be stoned? I'm not talking about marijuana either, okay? This is Santa Cruz. I know it's popular, right? But here's the reality. Can you imagine standing up somewhere and someone throwing rocks at you until you die? That happened to Paul, and you know what happened? He died, God raised him from the dead, and he went right back into Lystra and started preaching Jesus again. you got to love Paul, amen? 
But why? Because this is a guy who didn't care about the world and wasn't worried about being popular with men, and he chose one to be faithful to God. And he was a man that was used mightily by God because he wasn't worried about what the world thought of him. Verse 12, And we labor, working with our hands. You've got to understand that to those in Corinth, labor, manual labor, was only something done by slaves. And Paul was what? A tent maker. By the way, laziness is a sin. Did you know that? The Bible says a man who doesn't provide for his family is worse than what? An unbeliever. So God desires that we as men, for, the Bible says back in Genesis, that we're going to toil in the ground by the sweat of our brow to provide for our family. God's called us to do that, you guys. And so when we don't do that, we're not doing what God's called us to do. And Paul was a tent maker. And Paul had no problem doing ministry and making tents all at the same time. It's not a choice. You said, you know what? God's called me. I'm going to make tents because that's how I'm going to provide for my, my, my needs. But at the same time, I'm going to do what I'm really called to do, which is minister to others. He says then, look how he responds. Now, here's the key, you guys. It's not trials that give us opportunity to witness. It's how we respond to trials. Amen? Everybody goes through trials. It's how do we respond. Look what he says. Being reviled, we curse and scream and throw a fit. Is that what it says? Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, that means having your name drugged through the mud and lies told about you. He says, we entreat. And the word there for entreat means to encourage. So someone's dragging your name through the mud and you encourage them. That's what, the, that's what it says in the text. We have been made as the filth of the world and the offscouring of all things until now. He says, basically, we've been made to be like the scum of the earth. And yet God is still using us. Verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I've begotten you through the gospel. You know what he says to them? I'm warning you, but let me tell you why I'm warning you. Because I love you. Not only is a man or woman of God a servant and a steward that God can use, and not only are they people who are humble, but they also have a supernatural love for those that they minister to. And he says, I'm writing this to you because I love you. And you know what? I share the truth of the Bible with you guys, not because I want to grind. I do it because I love you. And I know that it'll transform your life. He says then, lastly, therefore I urge you, imitate me. How many of you guys feel like you could say that to your neighbors? Could you say that? I don't think I, I don't, I, I think imitate Jesus, Amen. Like, can you imagine having a walk so strong with the Lord that you could turn to these guys and say, imitate me? You've got to remember that the Bible wasn't fully written yet. Uh, obviously, he's writing it here in this, even in this letter. And he turns to them and says, imitate me. Paul was an example, not only of what a Christian said, but also what a Christian did. And you know what? May we live lives like that where we can turn to our kids and say to, I can say to my boys or to my daughter, imitate me. I'm not there yet. My prayer would be that I would. Imitate me. You see the way I treat your mom? I want you to treat your wife that way one day. You see the way that I treat people in the neighborhood? I want you to treat people that way. You see the way that I pray? I want you to pray that way. You see how I get up in the morning and spend time in the Word? I want you to do the same. Paul said to them, imitate me. Let me ask you a question. Which of these people really understood what it was all about? It wasn't these guys who had the praise of men. It was this man who was considered the scum of the earth, but was being used mightily by God. For this reason I send Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ, and as I teach everywhere in every church. So he sends Timothy. We know Timothy was his son in the faith. And he says, you know what? I'm not only going to send you a letter, but I'm going to send you my right-hand guy to minister to your hearts. That's the pastor's heart. Now some of you are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. The word there for power, what is it? Give you one guess. Dunamos. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, and you shall receive dunamos, dynamite, dynamic. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And he says, it's not how eloquent your words are. These guys were great orators. It's not your words that are going to convince me where you are with God. It's the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. We can use words to convince people of anything, but it's the power of God in our life that transforms things. And I love what he says here again. I'll come to you shortly. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. 
What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? You know what? That's a word for all of us. The Lord is coming. How many of you know that? It's going to rapture the church. And it's either going to be for all mankind, it's either going to be a rod or, as he says in this text here, in love and a spirit of gentleness. I'm looking forward to the rapture. How about you? I can't wait. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. He, he has my permission to come this afternoon. How about you? Amen? Lord, come. And until then, I want to be found faithful. But you know what? If you know the Lord, it's going to be the greatest thing ever. Amen? We're going to be in heaven forever and ever. No more pain, no more death, no more sorrow, no more weeping. We're going to see those that have gone before us. We're going to be around the throne of Almighty God. And I am going to sit in the lap of my Savior. I can't wait. How about you? Amen? But what he says there to them is, I'm coming and I'm either going to come with a rod or I'm going to come in gentleness and love. And those who reject the Lord, when He comes, it won't be pretty. Amen? So, a man or a woman that God can use. Number one, has a servant's heart and has the heart of a steward. Is one who seeks praise only from God. Esteems others greater than himself. Number two is humble. Knows every gift that he has comes from the Lord. And lastly is one that has a supernatural love for those you're called to minister to. Can I encourage you as, I, as we close in prayer? Can I encourage you with something? If, you, if you're not sure what you're supposed to do and God's put a burden on your heart, can I encourage you just to start praying for the people by name that you think you might be called to minister to? Just start there. If you think maybe God's calling you to be in the children's ministry, go get a list of the kids' names that are in that class and start praying for them for a couple weeks and see what God does in your heart. Because you know what? That's when God will reveal His heart to you. When you start praying for them, you start having a burden for them. Be humble. Have a servant's heart. Be a good steward of what God has given you in the way of gifts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You, Lord, that You've called each and every one of us into ministry. And Lord, I pray that it would not be by might nor by power, but by Your Spirit, says the Lord. That, Lord, we wouldn't trust in our own abilities. We wouldn't seek to serve You with man-made gifts. But, Lord, we'd be in a position where we're desperate for You, where we are like the Apostle Paul, we're at the end of ourselves, where even the world looks down upon us. But Lord, in the midst of that, as we're desperate for you, you can use us mightily. Because it's when we're weak that you are made strong. It's when we're weak, Lord, that you can use us for your glory. So Father, we continue to pray, Lord, just for the gifts you've given us. I pray for each person who's here. Just this week, reveal to each of us, Lord, not just the gifts you've given us, but if there's more gifts you have for us and more things you desire to do with us that we might be good and faithful stewards. And when you return, that we might be found doing your perfect will. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.